Good morning. Today's text is from the book, the Gospel, rather, of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had 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 the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what it had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had had mercy on you. And when he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The word of the Lord. Now, I love The Exorcist. And I'm not talking about the 1973 William Friedkin supernatural horror movie, which I do love. I saw when they re-released that movie in the theaters. And it is horrifying. It is one of the truly scariest movies that is out there. And, and I don't get scared by movies. No, 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 no. When I say I love The Exorcist, I mean I love the original Exorcist. Jesus was an exorcist. Which means that he believed in and cast out evil, or rather, as our, our, our text says this morning, uh, unclean spirits. And so Jesus believed in and lived in a world that was filled with malevolent spiritual agents. It's unavoidable. And one of the things that Jesus was most known for, that made the greatest impression upon his contemporaries, was confronting, driving away, and defeating those spiritual powers. And this account we have here in Mark is, is the longest, the most detailed account of such an exorcism in any of our gospel texts. Now, this is something that, you know, if we read it here in the 21st century, for some of us, could be embarrassing. Now, in the global church, in a lot of different contexts, this is not something that's embarrassing at all. But for us, 21st century, uh, you know, ur urbane, cosmopolitan 
Americans, this could be embarrassing because, you know, uh, we don't believe in these things anymore. We live in a, in a post-enlightenment, post-scientific revolution world. You know, we think that people used to believe that, that demons and devils were behind every kind of illness and trouble, but now we have germ theory and we have microscopes. And so we have a perspective on the world and on causality that was unimaginable for our ancestors. And so even if we're religious people, and if you happen to be in a sanctuary at almost 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning on January 76, you probably qualify as a religious person. Even if you're a religious person, you know, largely we've conceded the ground to, to humanists and naturalists who hold that, you know, from a humanist perspective, man is the measure of all things. And from the naturalist perspective, there is no supernatural realm. Nothing exists outside of the natural world, and so nothing outside of the natural world can be appealed to as a cause or an explanation in any meaningful sort. And so the vast majority of people, though, they're not pure humanists or, or, or naturalists, but, but we've sort of allowed them to set the rules of engagement. And so religious faith and religious claims have no purchase in the public sphere of objective facts, right? The naked public square. They are restricted purely to the private realm of subjective feelings or opinions. My favorite quote ever about opinions comes from the Big Lebowski. That's just like your opinion, man. That's how religious claims are treated. And so we might find ourselves at a loss when we come to a story like this. Okay, we need to demythologize it. Jesus or Mark or the early church might have thought that Jesus was casting out a legion of demons, but actually he was really doing something else, confronting this man's divided psychology or his social ostracism, something like that. But friends, I just want to encourage us this morning that we actually don't have any reason to be ashamed. And in fact, this text is a wonderful challenge for us and a wonderful opportunity for us to reclaim something that's essential about the Christian message. That at the heart of the gospel proclaimed by Jesus and lived out in his ministry is the claim that when the kingdom of God comes near, as Jesus is saying time and again in Mark, that when this kingdom comes near, evil is being dealt a decisive death blow. And evil itself, it's the very thing that cannot be accounted for by the humanists or the naturalists. If man is the measure of all things, then can we really say anything is evil in, in a meaningful sense outside of, uh, you know, if we're working from within that framework, calling something evil is just saying this is something that I really disapprove of. But we know, we know intuitively that just won't do. We know that slavery was an evil institution, that lynchings that were perpetrated on African Americans to keep them living in subjection and, and terror were evil. That the Columbine massacre was evil. The Sandy Hook school shooting was evil. Timothy McVeigh, evil. Dylan Roof, evil. Jeffrey Dahmer, evil. The Las Vegas shooter, evil. In ways that cut against merely our subjective disapproval. Their, their crimes are offenses that cry out against heaven. And so just as humanists have no answer for the reality of evil, naturalists can do no better if all reality is reducible only to biology, chemistry, and physics all the way down, then what sense does it make to condemn certain acts or movements or institutions as evil? And I think that's the reason why so much of what we have traditionally labeled evil has been reduced by definition almost to mental illness or malfunctioning brains. Ignoring the reality that severe mental illness almost never issues forth in great evil, it's almost always a hindrance to such acts. The Columbine tuners, Eric Harris and, and Dylan Klebold, 
They were incredibly methodical in carrying out their attack. Their plans were meticulous, rational. It's just that their ends, what they hoped to accomplish, was horrifying. The murder of as many of their classmates and teachers as possible. Jesus' exorcism shows us here actually how much more realistic the Christian understanding of evil is than other accounts. And and it shows the ways in which evil works. And lastly, it it reveals to us ultimately how we can have hope that evil will be overcome, that it will be defeated. And so on that, 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 that first point, that the encounter with the Gerasene demoniac shows how much more realistic the Christian understanding of evil is than other accounts. It's surprising because we've actually been trained to think the opposite, that what this shows us is the New Testament and Jesus at its most primitive and unbelievable. That this is an embarrassing incident from which we must move along as sort of quickly as possible. When in fact, the exact opposite is true. And so first, it, it is a merely modern prejudice to, to suppose that people in biblical times believed that every illness, every you know, physical or, or mental condition was caused by evil spirits. That's just not the case. We can look at Matthew 4 itself, where it, where it talks about the summary of Jesus' ministry, and it says that they brought to Jesus all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And so Matthew itself, the New Testament itself, draws distinctions between various types of people who came to Jesus for healing, various categories. And only one of those is described as oppressed by demons. And in his sermon on this passage, Tim Keller highlights a famous sermon by an English Puritan preacher named Richard Baxter. And and Baxter preached this sermon that was titled, The Best Preservatives Against Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow. Which is, sermon titles were much better uh, back in the day. And it's a sermon about causes of depression, uh, what we would call depression, and treatments that are most effective. And so we think, okay, well, he's preaching 400 years ago, and so he's going to spiritualize depression, or he's going to moralize it. But he doesn't do that. Baxter highlights these four causes of depression and four treatments. He says, well, it can have a physiological cause, in which case the treatment is nutrition and rest, you know, medicine, we would add to that list. He says it can have a moral cause, like guilt or shame, in which case the best treatment is, is, is repentance and forgiveness. Thirdly, he says it can have a, a psychological cause, in which case the treatment is love, support, care, community. And lastly, he says it can have a spiritual cause. He says there can be malevolent forces that are oppressing you, and so the treatment is prayer and the gospel. And so Scripture, we see then, and the Christian tradition are actually far more nuanced when it comes to illness then we give it credit for. In fact, it refuses to reduce illness, especially mental illness, to purely materialistic, moralistic, or psychological terms. Scripture, it's much more holistic than that. It's much more nuanced than that. It understands that, that evil in, is both out there and in here, that it's both physical and spiritual, that it's both individual and corporate. And so the biblical account of evil actually helps us to account for the world in ways that make much more sense of things than those offered to us by, by the humanists and the naturalist uh, assumptions that predominate our culture. In fact, I think one of our great cultural frustration comes from the fact that the evil and the spiritual have been circumscribed from our discourse in such a way that it makes so much of our analysis of contemporary uh, problems and issues seem so shallow. Now, say what you will about uh, Marianne Williamson. She is the New Age guru who is running for the uh, Democratic uh, nomination for president. And so she made, you know, the early debates, and uh, she was roundly mocked 
by a certain type of a, a blue check mark on Twitter for her answer at, a, at a, one of the Democratic debates that came several months ago where she was asked a question about the Flint water crisis. She said, what are you going to do about the Flint water crisis? And so she gave this answer that did include some specific policy prescriptions for what to do. But then she also said, but listen, no, 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 we also need to, to, to do something about these dark psychic forces that have been unleashed on our country and how those need to be addressed just as much as, as the specifics of the crisis itself. And so the intelligentsia, you know, they tut-tutted and roundly mocked her. But the people in the audience that day cheered because there's a thirst for discourse that actually gets at the spiritual dimension of our existence that's almost completely neglected these days. Things that can't be addressed by, you know, another white paper written by some bloodless technocrat sitting unread on some candidate's website. Things like Flint. Things like the opioid crisis, things like the increase in the deaths of despair and decline in life expectancy in our country, things like mass shootings, these are problems that require both public policy prescriptions, yes, but also spiritual diagnoses as well. And so when we see Jesus driving out demons, we see how Jesus addresses each and every human need, which includes our spiritual needs, which especially includes our need for deliverance from evil. The modern mind says, well, you know, human beings are sick and so we need treatment, or our social systems are broken and so they need reform or to be fixed, or, or we're ignorant and so what we need is more education. And Christianity says yes, yes, yes to all of those things. But then it also says that we are oppressed and held in captivity by spiritual forces that want to destroy us, and so what we need is deliverance redemption, rescue, salvation. Because evil's persistence and, and its prevalence, it, it reminds us of our powerlessness over it when we're relying upon purely human resources. You know, what did the Gerasenes try? They, 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 they tried whatever human resources they had to shackle this man, to restrain him. When that didn't work, uh, you know, they, they, had, they kept him isolated, away from the village. Now, did that work? No. And when it comes to dealing with evil purely on human terms, we have similar strategies at our disposal to, 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 to sort of restrain or to isolate. But in order to truly overcome it and drive it away, we need the help of a power that is infinitely greater than we have at our own disposal. And so we see that, that, that the Christian account of evil is actually much more realistic, it's much more holistic than those that, that predominate. But next, I want to look at this story and what it shows us about the pattern of how evil works in not just this man's story, but all of our stories. And so first, just a word about language. The, the translation here says a couple of times that this man was demon-possessed, but the actual Greek simply means that he was demonized, which I think is a more ambiguous uh, phrase that's helpful. You know, it's clear that, 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 that these dark powers are in charge of this man, they're in control of him, but it's also clear that he's been demonized by his community as they've attempted to shackle him and then ostracized him amongst the tombs. And so while this man, he is an extreme case, I think that it's important for all of us to recognize ourselves in this man to, to one degree or another. All of us can relate to being influenced by forces that are outside of our control and outside of ourselves even. All of us have self-destructive tendencies. All of us isolate ourselves or have been isolated. And all of us 
have some aspect of our lives or, or some sin that we are afraid to let Jesus deal with. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, says that before his conversion, he was a, quote, zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name, he says, was Legion. And so while we rightfully pity this man, we can never neglect the ways in which we are this man as well. And so here's the five patterns of, of how we see evil working in this passage. It, it, it's, it's self-destructive and dehumanizing. It's controlling. It's gradual. It's fearful. It's blinding. So first, it's self-destructive and dehumanizing. Our text tells us that this man was, was cutting himself with stones. It says that he howled and, and no one could subdue him. And that word for subdue is actually the word that means uh, to tame, like a wild animal. And so wherever there is evil, it wants to destroy and dehumanize. And this man no longer had a name. He referred to himself as legion. Other people referred to him as the demonized one. And so here is this person, just like us, created in God's image and God's likeness. And evil and the evil one want to deface that and take that away as an affront against God. And so anyone who has struggled with addiction or knows someone who has knows how that behavior is, is destructive and dehumanizing, causing people to do things they never thought they would, accept conditions for their life that they never imagined. The second evil is controlling. For all the strength that he has, right? It says that no one could chain him anymore. He broke the shackles. Uh, for all the strength that he has, he's not in control. It's evil that's controlling him, not him controlling evil. And so he's broken these chains. But the, the sad irony, the tragic irony, is that he is still in bondage. He is strong, stronger than any person around him. But in this strength, he is incredibly weak. So that's why we talk about evil in terms of possession. When we're under the sway of evil, we're being controlled. And think about how many of us have had that experience where we say, I, don't, I just don't know what came over me. I don't know what happened. I don't know what I was thinking. See, evil wants to control us while giving us the illusion of strength and control. Becky Pippert in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, says, no one is in control of themselves. Whatever you seek most in your life becomes your Lord. It's unavoidable. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And so we see here that only Jesus is the fitting Lord of our lives because only he truly wants to offer us genuine freedom. St. Paul says that, you know, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so evil wants to control us in order to enslave us. It only offers us counterfeit freedom. That might seem like it's this great liberation or breaking chains or restraints, but really it's still our master. The third pattern we see here of how evil works is that it's gradual. Now, where do we see that in our passage? And it's very subtle, and it's very easy to miss, but right there in verse 3 it says, now no one could bind him anymore. And that word anymore, it should send a chill down our spines because things weren't always this bad. You know, one of my favorite things to say, Amy and my favorite things to say is, you know what, it's bad now, it can always get worse. And with evil, that's true. It can always get worse the effects of this poison are gradual, one small step, one small compromise at a time. 
And so we should understand, we should be humbled by the fact that we are different from this man, not in kind, but in degree. The fourth pattern of evil is that it makes us fearful. This man, he runs towards Jesus. He throws himself down and he says, do not torment me. He begs Jesus, don't torment me. And so this man, who's cutting himself with stones, who's living amongst the tombs, who's howling uh, like an animal, says to Jesus, don't torment me. This man, who could be described as nothing but tormented, is begging Jesus not to torment him. It's so sad that it's almost comical. Evil has so warped this man's perspective that he is now afraid of the good. He's been so confined in the darkness that he's afraid of the light. And so evil, it wants to keep us confined and and it wants to keep us afraid because when we're afraid, people who are afraid are easy to control. They'll accept almost anything. They'll do almost anything if you promise to keep them from what they fear. And the last pattern we see here of how evil works is that it blinds us to the mercy of God, that there's a way out. And the great irony here is that while Jesus is attempting to cast out this, you know, legion of demons, the man says to Jesus, I adjure you by God. And that language itself is an exorcism formula. You know, Jesus is different. He doesn't use any formula or, or, you know, complicated hocus-pocus saying. He just says, come out of the man. Well, this guy, he uses an exorcism formula against Jesus. And so Jesus is casting out the legions, and the legions are attempting to cast him out. And so the devil lets the man see Jesus as, 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 a, as a powerful person. You know, he knows what Jesus is up to, that, that, that he's the son of, of the Most High God, but he doesn't let him see the mercy of Jesus. Right? The evil one lets the man see that God is a God of power, but not a God of grace. And that's why the man is afraid of Jesus. And that's why the townsfolk are afraid of Jesus, too. They only see his power, but not his mercy. Evil blind them, blinds them to that. Their reaction to this, this former demoniac sitting clothed, calm in his right mind, is to be afraid and then ask Jesus to leave. And so, you know, at the end of the story, the legion of demons are cast out, and their response is to cast Jesus out of their midst. And so let us not be blind to God's mercy and the ways that we are sometimes actually repelled by it, the ways that we actually prefer darkness to the light. But the last thing I want us to look at is is how we have hope that evil will be overcome. First way we see it is that the man rushes towards Jesus. He falls down at his feet. He bowed at his feet. And so evil, we hope, we know, can only be overcome by an encounter with Jesus. Because it's Jesus on the cross who is the one who overcame evil. And though the demoniac doesn't realize it at that moment, Jesus is going to take his place by the end of Mark. And T. Wright says, at the climax of Mark's story, Jesus himself will end up naked, isolated, outside the town among the tombs shouting incomprehensible things as he is torn apart on the cross by the standard Roman torture, his flesh torn to ribbons by the small stones in the Roman lash. And that, Mark is saying, is how the demons will be dealt with. That is how healing takes place. Jesus is coming to share the plight of the people, to let the enemy do its worst to him, to take the full force of evil on himself in order to let others go free. And so our hope that evil will be defeated ultimately rests in our faith that Jesus himself has overcome evil, 
on the cross, letting the worst that it has to offer, the full weight of sin and destruction, exhaust its power on him. And then on the third day, he rose again. Right, so evil is overcome by Jesus. It is over, overcome when we genuinely encounter him, when we bow our hearts at his presence and accept him as Lord. And it also comes when we answer that question that Jesus asked this man, what is your name? And the man said, legion, for we are many. And a legion was a Roman military unit consisting of 6,000 soldiers. And so this man had so many things controlling him, so many things he needed freedom from. But this legion was no match for Jesus. And so let me ask you this, what is your name? What is it that you need liberation from? What circumstance, what sin, what force, what habit, what substance, what illness? And the point of this exercise is not to blame yourself, but to express to Jesus, to God, your desire to be made free and to trust that ultimately he's going to give you that. You will be released. And lastly, the last way we see evil is overcome in this passage is when we share the good news of God's mercy with others. The man begs Jesus, he begs him, let me come with you. And we can understand why. His, his neighbors have just treated him like a, a wild animal for who knows how long. And they've reacted to his healing, to his deliverance, with not joy and celebration, but fear and ambivalence. They've asked Jesus to leave town. No, they've begged Jesus to leave town. And so how can this man remain here amongst these people who might even blame him for the great economic loss of this herd of 2,000 pigs? But Jesus denies his request. He gives him work to do. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so we get to play our part in God's defeat of evil when we share our own testimony. When we tell others genuinely, not in some, you know, creepy or forced way, but, but actually genuinely, what has God done for you? How has his mercy manifested itself in your life? And so when we do that, we participate in Jesus' victory over evil, in his casting out of demons, in the coming of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We deal our own death blow in that way to the dark psychic forces at work in this world. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for this word, which shocks so many of our modern sensibilities and invites us to see the world in a very different way. And so, God, our prayer is simple. It echoes the, the, the prayer of Jesus that he taught his disciples, that, that you would lead us not into temptation, but you would deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one. And Lord God, that we might be part of your liberating work, your delivering work in this world. We pray this thing in the name of Jesus Christ, the strong one. Amen.